Well, good to be gathered back. I'm going to stand down here tonight. And the primary reason is that when I was up there and writing on the board last week, every time I'd move over to the board, I thought I was going to trip over those cords. <laughs> and, uh, you know, nothing like cutting a bad image your first time out with a group of people, but, Anyway, I think it's just uh, just as well to stand down here. So I'm going to do that, and uh, <clears throat> we're going to. I'm going to start by just briefly covering a couple of things we talked about last week, but I've written them down so that you can see them visually. And if you take notes, you can write them down. If not, again, Pastor mentioned that. Uh, this is being recorded, which I guess it is, since I'm wearing the recording uh, device. But uh, I've always loved church history and taught it for 20 years at uh, college and seminary. And I guess one of the things I love about church history is that I consider myself a real people person, as long as they're dead people, <laughs> and these are all dead people that we talk about. Uh, anyway, just playing with you. Breaking the ice, as they say. Now, uh, in order to get us to the place where we're going to start talking about Baptists, which we will do tonight, I promise, uh, I covered some material last week, but I, it occurred to me driving home that I gave you a bewildering array of facts and names and so on without having them all written down. And the ones I did write down, I wrote in blue ink, which may not have been visible all over the room. So I've chosen black ink and I've got more information here. But one of the things we dealt with last time was King Henry VIII. That's who the Henry is up here. Um, and the dates I've given you are the dates that he was king. So he ruled over England about 38 years, long time. And um, he was married not eight times, but six times. So I've given you the names in order of all of his wives. And I said a little bit about the first three. I'll briefly mention them again and then say a little bit more about the last three because they are, I think, important uh, for our discussion in its own right. And then the children. These are the three children of Henry, the three legitimate children of Henry, and to whom they were born, the mother, that is their mothers. And then uh, I'll explain the rest of this as we go along. So Henry's first wife was Catherine. She was his brother's wife, and his brother was the oldest son of their father, Henry VII. His name was Arthur, and he was due to take the throne. He married Catherine of Aragon, Princess of Spain. By the way, Catherine was the daughter of Ferdinand and Isabella, just to put her in context, context of names you're familiar with. And of course, if you think about Ferdinand and Isabella and what they were in the process of launching in the discoveries in the New World, 
It wasn't just financing the voyage of, of Christopher Columbus, but also the beginning of the gold trade with South America. And this is going to make Spain the most wealthy European country throughout the 1500s and really into the into the 1600s a little bit. So Catherine of Aragon is their daughter, and it was very important for Henry VII, this Henry's dad, to cultivate a relationship with them because, again, if you're a king and a queen, you marry your children off for political alliances, not because they come home and from the date and say, oh, daddy, I'm in love. I don't care if you're in love. What can his family do for us? Okay, now some of you may have already heard that. I don't know. But that that was really the case for the monarchies, and that's why the monarchies of the European countries were also interconnected and interwoven and intermarried over a period of hundreds of years. <coughs> so Catherine becomes the wife of Arthur. Arthur dies very young <coughs> before he can assume the kingship. And so they Henry VII marries her off Secondly, to his son, Henry VIII. It was important to maintain that political alliance and important to keep the dowry. She brought about, she brought about 500,000 English pounds sterling into the wedding, into the marriage with her. And England was strapped for cash. You know how it is. The head of any state is always strapped for cash, right? It's that today, is nothing different. So she marries Henry and she gives birth early on to Mary. We'll come back to that. Then the second wife is Anne Boleyn. Because Catherine was unable to deliver a male heir, and it was always the wife's fault in those days, right? I mean, I'm Henry VIII. I can have a son. What's wrong with you, woman? And so... She did have two sons. They both died in, in infancy, one only a month after he was born, one in the first year. Uh, but the only child uh, of hers to survive early childhood is Mary. So Henry has a roving eye. He's the king after all. He can kind of have whatever woman he wants. And so uh, this is what he does. He winds up having a son by an English courtier family, um, and that son will uh, be named Fitzhenry. Um, I think his name is Arthur, Arthur Fitzhenry. Uh, in England, if you had the prefix F-I-T-Z to your name, it meant that you were not legitimate. Now, obviously, things have changed over time, and that's just a name today like John Fitzgerald Kennedy. Okay, but that's where the Fitz came from. All right, so uh, when Henry wanted that son to become his heir, Parliament said, eh. And Parliament had certain powers given to it in England that the king didn't have. Uh, this, this goes all the way back to the year 1215 and the signing of the Magna Carta. 
Parliament has certain powers. King has other powers. You can't mix the powers. So our idea of executive and legislative actually kind of comes from that. All right. So they said that that couldn't be his heir. And so try as he might, he and Catherine could not have a son who lived. And his his wandering eye then fell upon Anne Boleyn. Now, Anne Boleyn's father was an English nobleman. And in fact, before he had a little fling with Anne, he had a fling with her older sister. But that didn't work out for Henry. And so he has this thing going on with Anne and winds up discovering that she is with child. So early in 1534, he has to rush through this issue with Parliament of separating from the Roman Church because the Pope will not grant him an annulment. In those days, the Catholic Church didn't give a divorce, but you could have a marriage annulled. And the primary grounds on which a marriage could be annulled is if there had been no finalization or consummation of the marriage. Well, since she's had six kids, I can't really argue that. But what Henry did argue was that his his marriage to Catherine should never have happened because it was a violation of Catholic canon law. And that was the argument that he presented to the papacy, why he should receive an annulment. Didn't seem to worry about that when he first met Catherine and she was a hottie and he was thinking she was going to be his wife forever and a day. But now it suddenly matters. And so since the Pope won't grant him an annulment, and by the way, there's probably a primary reason why the Pope wouldn't. The Pope, Clement VII, was the nephew, nephew of guess who? Catherine, (laughs) you want to divorce my aunt? I don't think so. All right. So uh, he refused to grant the annulment. And so Henry finally has Parliament pass the Act of Supremacy. I talked about that last week. It makes the king the supreme head of the Church of England. He appoints his own archbishop, Thomas Cranmer, who, by the way, before he became the Archbishop of Canterbury, and that position is the highest position in in the English church, before he became the Archbishop of Canterbury, guess what his job was? Well, he wasn't a bishop. He wasn't even a local church priest. He was the chaplain to the Boleyn family. Now, Thomas Cramer turned out to be a great guy. But in the early days of all this happening, it looked like just so much more political shenanigans. But Cranmer uh, authorized the annulment, and then King Henry divorces himself from Catherine, marries Anne Boleyn. She's already with child, early 1534, and she gives birth to Elizabeth. Okay, now... After the giving birth to Elizabeth, Henry thinks, well, she's going to have other children. Two years go by, no more babies. And so Henry accuses her of adultery, which was not true. 
I've, everything we know about Anne Boleyn tells us it was not true. She was a firm, staunch, devout Protestant. She wrote a book about her faith, and it's and and she was the wife of the King of England. I mean, it doesn't get any higher than that. So it was untrue. By the way, there's a great movie. It's an older movie, but it's a great movie. It's called Anne of a Thousand Days, which is just about exactly the amount of time they stayed married. He, he accused her of adultery. She was executed for being an adulteress against the king. And that same year, in 1537, he marries Jane Seymour. And Jane Seymour gives birth to the one son, the one legitimate son that Henry will have, Edward. Okay, now I'm just going to say a couple of brief things about these other wives. Uh, Jane Seymour dies right after giving birth. We don't know why. Toxic shock syndrome has been one uh, proposed thought about why she died. She clearly would not have been killed by Henry because if she could give birth to one son, she could have given birth to another son in his way of thinking. And if you're the king, you want more than one son because of the high rate of infant mortality. Infant mortality rates were terrible in those days. And um, so anyway, more sons means more chances. That's how Henry became king in the first place. All right. But Jane Seymour dies the same year he marries Anne of Cleves. Now, Anne of Cleves was a German. And she was the she was the uh, sister of one of the German nobles, an elector from Germany. It wasn't called Germany then. But anyway, uh, she was a German and Henry never saw her before his wedding. But his trusted advisor, a man by the name of Trump, Thomas Cromwell, not Cranmer, those are two different guys, Thomas Cromwell uh, arranged the wedding, arranged the marriage. And so Thomas went to Germany, met with her brother, met with her. Thomas came back and Henry said, well, what was she like? So he answered, what does she look like? Well, she had a great personality. Well, the day of the wedding was the first day that Henry saw her. And she was apparently less than unpleasant to look at. Extremely unpleasant to look at. All right. And the day after the wedding, Henry wrote her a big check, sent her back to Germany, had Thomas Cromwell beheaded. If you decide to be a matchmaker for the king, you better be careful of what match you make. Okay. So Anne of Cleves, short marriage, one day, two days. Then he marries Catherine Howard. Now, Catherine of Howard clearly did commit adultery in their relationship. And I want to put this as gently as I can. She had a relatively unhealthy relationship with her own brother. Can we just leave it at that? And Henry makes sure that neither Catherine nor her brother has 
either a healthy or an unhealthy relationship with anybody else for the rest of their lives, which is very, very short. All right. And then he marries Catherine Parr. Catherine Parr was the wife who had the good fortune to outlive King Henry. Now, you'll notice that none of these three bore children. By this time, Henry was older. And all the pictures you see of Henry VIII, most of them at least, he's kind of a big fat guy, kind of not very pleasant looking. and looks like he's had too much dinner and too much wine. And nothing can hurt your love life more than bad combinations like that. So Henry had no further children. So at the end of the day, when he dies in 1547, this is what we're left with. Now, Edward, though he was in the middle of the children, he was the second born. He's the son. So he becomes the king. And I mentioned last week that that uh, Edward was a convinced Protestant. I mean, he had he had. Uh, advisors, advisors around him from his mother's family who were firmly convinced Protestants and they led him in that direction. I mean, he had a, like an I love Martin Luther bumper sticker on his baby crib, you know, and a, a John Calvin mobile above his bed when he was a baby. Well, I'm, I'm, elaborating a little too much here. But the point is, he was committed. And when he became king at the age of nine, he was thoroughly committed to the process. In fact, he wanted to push the process faster almost than anyone else around him did. Remember Thomas Cranmer, our old friend. By this time, Cranmer has become an extremely influential archbishop. And Cramer wanted the reforms to continue, but Edward wanted to push them even faster than Cramer did. All right, he really wanted to make England into a Protestant, almost what we think about later on as a Puritan kind of country. But alas for Edward, he's dead at the age of 16 with no wife and no children, which makes Mary the Queen and we've talked about her. I won't go back to that. This is Bloody Mary. And uh, thankfully, she rules only five years from 1553 at the death of her brother to 1558. And she dies, has no children. She married late in life. Uh, <clears throat> so neither Edward had any children, nor did Mary have any children and so Elizabeth becomes the queen. Now, I think I may have said 1559 last week. Sometimes when you teach on something, Pastor, you probably know this experience, maybe not, but you leave and you think, I know I said something wrong. What was it? Uh, she became queen early or late in 1558. And when she becomes queen, she takes basically the same position that her dad had taken, Henry VIII, in this will be a Protestant country. I will be the head of the church, but we're not going to get too crazy here. Okay. We're still going to have an Episcopal form of church government. 
which means you have bishops at the top and then bishops under the bishops and then priests under those bishops. Okay, so everything is still controlled at the top, like the Roman Catholic system today. The Church of England system was modified based on the Roman system, but it's not all that different. Uh, we're going to maintain this Episcopal system. I, as the queen, will be the head of the church. I will appoint my two archbishops, one in Canterbury, one in York, okay? And they will appoint the bishops under them and so on. And so it's still going to be under tight control, but the, the preachers or the priests can preach whatever they want to in their churches. You want to preach Calvinism? That's great. You want to preach something a little different? That's fine, as long as it's not Catholic. And as long as you try, do not try to take the reforms too far, like throwing out the images or getting rid of the saints' days, when you come in, you still have to make the sign of the cross when you walk in the church because that's what people are used to. That's Elizabeth. It's called, it was called the Via Media, the Middle Road, or the Elizabethan Settlement. Okay, I think I said all of that last week. Well, it's under Elizabeth that a movement begins. Somewhere around 1560, 1561, and this movement sought to purify the English church of all of its old Roman tendencies. And because it was a movement of purification, the critics of it gave it a nickname, the Puritans. Who were the Puritans? They were the, the individuals, pr predominantly pastors, but some politicians as well, who stayed within the English church, didn't want to break away, but has sought to purify the church doctrine and practice according to the scripture. And the Puritan movement will grow and grow and grow under Elizabeth, and they will come become a real thorn in the side of Elizabeth as time goes by. So much so that She's chomping at the bit in dealing with them. And the next monarch, James I, we'll get to in just a minute, will actually have to imprison some of the Puritan leaders. Now, there was a whole other group, and this group is very important for us. They were known as separatists. And the separatists did not want to simply stay in the church and purified from within, they wanted to break away and form their own churches. Instead of meeting down at the local parish church on Sunday, y'all come on over to my house. We're going to do church there. These were the separatists. And with these people, Elizabeth had a great deal of difficulty. She wound up imprisoning some of them, and, and sponsoring at least two or three executions of separatists um, because she had her, her parliament had passed something called the Act of Uniformity, which meant that every church 
must have a uniform practice. You don't like the way we do it in this parish church here? We'll go down the one, the one just down the street. Well, guess what? They do it the same way there. So the whole idea that we have today of church shopping would have done you no good under Elizabeth. You may trade the personality of one pastor for the personality of another, but everything else remains the same. The worship service is the same. The What the ch- pastor wears is the same from church to church. Goodness gracious, pastor, we'd be in trouble, wouldn't we? The rest of the whole city would be in trouble. Well, actually, we'd be in jail right now, but... Um, So that's what separatism is all about. Now, why this is important is because it's out of the separatist movement that the early Baptists come. Okay? Now, before I talk about that, let me just summarize something here. And that is, throughout the 16th century, the 1500s, we have this Protestant Reformation taking place. And it breaks itself down into four parts. We've talked about the first three. I want to briefly talk about the fourth, and that gets us to the Baptists. We have the Lutheran churches. They, in effect, begin when Martin Luther is excommunicated by the Roman Catholic Church in 1521. They don't actually form an official church for a couple of more decades. But they're there and they're doing things in a different way than the Roman Catholics are. And they are essentially German and Scandinavian in their their origins or in their geography. All right, so Lutheran churches, Northern Germany, Scandinavia, reformed. The Reformed churches were primarily in Switzerland. So we think of John Calvin, a name that I may have mentioned last week, but he's not nearly as well known as Calvin, but almost as important. Ulrich Zwingli, he's from the city of Zurich. So it's always easy to remember. Zwingli from Zurich, okay? I always wanted to have a Z in my name somewhere, you know. Asked my mom, why don't you give me a first name with a Z in it? I just thought Zs were cool. But anyway, Zwingli gets it both ways. Zwingli from Zurich. So the Reformed churches were primarily Swiss. There are a couple of areas in Germany that adopt the same thing. Basically, when we think about the Reformed churches, they are the Protestant churches that aren't Lutheran. That may be the easiest way to think about them. Then thirdly is the Anglican Church, and that's just England. And then eventually America, when the colonization of New England and Virginia and all of that begins. Anglican. Then there's a final group that I haven't mentioned yet. And this final group, um, we used to go by the name the Anabaptists. The word Anabaptist in the Greek, because it's a combination of a Greek prefix and then a Greek noun, just means to baptize again, or ones who are baptized again. 
Anna again. And they were called this again as a nickname, a pejorative term, a, a criticism by their, by their enemies. Oh, those are the people that baptize again. Now, these guys said, no, we don't baptize again. We're baptizing you for the first time. Because they held to the view of disciples' baptism, believers' baptism, and they believed that that was the only baptism. Now, wherever else you went in the Christian world for 1,500 years, except for maybe the first 200, we're not sure about what was happening the first 200 years there doesn't seem to be a lot of infant baptism then. But from about the year 200, 250 on, churches are baptizing babies. And this becomes the practice with Roman Catholic, with Eastern Catholic. It stays the practice with Lutherans, with the Reformed, and with the Anglican. And there are reasons why this is the case. Uh, the primary reason is that baptism serves a twofold purpose in European Christianity, whether Eastern European or Western European. Serve two purposes. Number one, it brought you into the church membership. So you're accountable to the church. But secondly, it brought you into a relationship with the state with the government because the government mandated infant baptism. And so when you were baptized as an infant, that meant that your parents were obeying the mandate of the state by bringing you into conformity and placing your name not only on the membership role of the church, but on the membership role of the state. Both of these things are happening with infant baptism. So when the radicals who came originally from around Zurich, they were the students of Zwingli, uh, when, they, when they first began to arise, they, uh, the criticism of them was, you're anarchists. How can these children be accountable to the state if they have not been baptized, regardless of what it means for the church. But the state got involved very early on. And when the state became involved, guess what happened? In cities like Zurich, Anabaptist pastors began to be persecuted and eventually executed. So Michael Sattler one of the earliest Anabaptist leaders was a man who was tried. Now, he was tried in a Catholic city, but his execution is one of the most noteworthy of all. When Michael Sattler was tried and found guilty, not of heresy, but guilty of sedition, of treason, he was whipped he was tied to the back, back of a cart and paraded through town while the people threw things at him and jeered at him. And uh, 
periodically they would stop and on this wagon they had a a coal stove with hot tongs down in the coals and they would take the hot tongs out and they would rip parts of his flesh from his body from his arms and his chest and his back until they got him to the edge of the river and there they made him stand while he witnessed them place his wife into a basket and put the cover on the basket and drowned his wife in the river before they burned him at the stake. That's a pretty gruesome way to die. But there was also persecution in Zurich and some persecution even by the Lutherans as well. And so these reformers were considered guilty of sedition. You see, part of their rejection of infant baptism was the idea that the state should not have authority over the church. The church ought to be free from the mandates of the state. And that's what got them into more trouble than anything else. And that became a central hallmark of these radicals. And the reason we call them the radical reformers is not because, like, they were radical, dude. You know, like they had tattoos and stuff like that. They're called radical because the word radical comes from the Latin word radix, which means root. And they said, they essentially argued that the problem with all these previous churches, Catholic, Lutheran, Reformed, uh, Anglican, and so on, is that they haven't gotten to the root of the problem. And especially the Reformation churches should have gotten to the root of the problem. The problem with Catholicism all through the centuries was the church was over, or the state was over the church. And the state ruled people's consciences, even at times when there was conflict between church and state. The state ruled people's religious consciences and made them conform. And they said, no, we think that's what it has to boil down to. And that became the nature of their radical belief, radical belief. And by the way, the Baptists, when they come along, have that same radical belief. You bunch of radicals, you. Expressed in our conviction that the state can't tell us what to do when it comes to religious issues. Okay? I mean, the First Amendment of the American Constitution codifies that. The, the Constitution doesn't limit the power of the people. It limits the powers of the state. I'm not here to give you a lesson in Constitution 101, but that very notion comes from Baptists. I'll say more about that next week. All right. So let's uh, kind of summarize everything leading up to the Baptist. So let's talk about the rise of the First Baptists. And the First Baptists came out of England. Now, I mentioned that they came out of the separatist movement. These people who argued that we shouldn't have to belong to the state church 
We can meet in local assemblies, whether in people's homes or in a school. We wouldn't have had schools the way we do. They had homes, but or in a town hall of some kind. We should be able to meet wherever we want to and not be under the state mandate coming down from Queen Elizabeth. As much as we love good Queen Bess, not not beholden to her, but we follow our own convictions. That's who the separatists were. Now, the separatists were still not Baptists at this point. In fact, the most famous famous separatist church of all was a group of separatists that came from Holland. In fact, several groups went to Holland. We'll uh, come back to that in a moment. But one group of Dutch, they were English people, but they had relocated to Amsterdam and then finally decided they didn't want to stay in Holland. I mean, what good... English-speaking father wants his son to grow up speaking Dutch as his primary language. All right? We're Englishmen. And so that group of people decided to leave Holland, but not go back to England, but instead to go somewhere else. Now, the church that they were a member of in Amsterdam was called the Pilgrim Church. It came from the biblical idea that we are here on a pilgrimage. And so what this group did in 1520 is they put their money together and they bought a ship and they hired a captain and they got on that, they got on one ship to get to England, then got on their ship that they'd bought in South England and they sailed to America. Because, as the old cartoon says, that some of you adults remember will remember, none of you kids will, there are no Catholics in America. It's actually there are no cats in America. It's the mouse file. Never mind. My jokes about those things are all too old to communicate to young people. But... uh The whole point is they sailed to America. They planned to go to Virginia. Fortunately for them, they didn't have a captain that was a very good navigator. And instead of landing in Virginia, whether he had a little too much rum the night before, I don't know. But instead of landing in Virginia, they landed at Plymouth Rock. And when we think about that group of people today, we call them the Pilgrim Fathers, why do you think that is? It's because that was the name of their church in Holland, the Pilgrim Church. They were separatists. They were broadly Calvinistic in their theology, but they were not Baptists. They did infant baptism. They agreed with Baptists on one thing, and that is, the state should not have authority to dictate to the church. But they didn't agree with the Baptists on the whole question of when does a person become baptized. So they landed in Plymouth, at Plymouth Rock, and they formed a colony, the Plymouth Colony, that was remained there in that part 
between Massachusetts in the north and Virginia in the south and remained as Plymouth Colony for about a 100 years until it was absorbed into Massachusetts Bay Colony or just Massachusetts Colony by that time. So um, these separatists, how did they become Baptists? Well, in the early 1600s, and the specific year is 1607, a group of these people decided that in order for them to practice church the way that they wanted to, they were going to have to flee England and go to Holland. By that time, 1607, James I is now the new king of England. He became king in 1603 when Elizabeth died. Now, when Elizabeth died, she had no children. She was not married. Elizabeth, even though she reigned for 45 years, never got married. She had plenty of suitors, but nobody quite matched up, and she was always dubious about their their intentions. You just want to be the king of England. Heck with you, buddy. And so she never married, and she's gone down in history known as the Virgin Queen. And that's why the colony of Virginia was named for her. Okay, in case you didn't know that little piece. If you were from Virginia, you would have known that. But those of us who live in Tennessee, you know, what does God have to do with Virginia these days? Well, maybe more with the new governor. We'll see. But not to get into politics, although we've been in politics all night. Okay, so when, when Elizabeth dies, she has no issue. King Henry VIII, one of the saddest things I can think about King Henry VIII is he never had a grandchild. Because Edward died at 16, his oldest daughter Mary died, having never married till she was late in life and never had children. And Elizabeth, though she became queen at age 25, could easily have married, never did. Henry VIII dies, and wherever he is spending eternity, he's undoubtedly sad with no little ones gathered around him or big ones gathered around him. But the point is that Elizabeth dies with no issue, no child. So Parliament has a dilemma. Now, it's not like they weren't expecting this. Uh, by the 1580s, they had pretty much made their minds up. She's probably not going to marry. Okay, so they had a plan in mind. And their plan was to go to the cousins and if you go back to Henry VII, father of Henry VIII, he had a child who married a king in Scotland. And so the king, the, the royal line in Scotland is related to the royal line in England by something like third cousins twice removed. However, that works. I'm not quite sure. I, Somebody explained it to me one time, and I just fell asleep while they were talking. But anyway, she, uh, they're cousins to the Stuart family. And the current king of Scotland, when Elizabeth died, was King James 
the sixth of Scotland, who became king of Scotland in 15, in, uh, 1567 at the age of one. Obviously, he had a regent or a series of regents that made decisions for him until he was 18. But then he becomes king of Scotland. He's King James VI of Scotland. And when Elizabeth died, the plan was already set in place that he became King James I of England. Sometimes you just kind of have to have a scorecard to keep up with all this. So James VI of Scotland is the same guy as James I of England. Okay? And of course, we all know the name King James I because he's the one who authorized the translation of the the King James Bible. Very good. All right? Or the St. James Bible, depending on how you want to talk about it. So, um, and when he was in Scotland, he was a Presbyterian because Scotland had a Presbyterian state church. But if you know very many really committed Presbyterians, present company excluded, I'll not talk about your daughter and son, son is that your daughter and son-in-law, granddaughter, granddaughter and grandson-in-law, uh, but Presbyterians have a reputation for arguing about theology. All right. So King James in Scotland had been spending his entire life as king listening to the arguments of this Scottish Presbyterian group against this Scottish Presbyterian group. And so when he became King James I of England, he left all the Presbyterians behind, and now he was the head of the Anglican Church. Praise the Lord. He's got his own church. He doesn't have to listen to any theologians anymore. A pox on all your houses. In fact, the Puritans and other Reformed-minded theologians in England meet with him in 1604, a year after he became king, at something called the Hampton Court Conference, and they try to convince him to turn England into a state Presbyterian church. And he basically looked at them and said, you want me to do what? It'll be, you've got a, snow, a snowball's chance in Helsinki about me doing something like that. I got my own church. They have to do what I tell them to do, or I don't have to pay attention to anything they say. All right, that's King James. And King James wanted no separatists. He was agreed with Elizabeth on this issue. And so the separatists read the handwriting on the wall. And in 1607, a group of them left for Holland, including the group that eventually got on the Mayflower and sailed to America. But not all of them got on the Mayflower. There were a variety of different churches. In fact, historians have uh, identified about five or six different Dutch separatist churches from England at this time. And there was a group, and they were there. And you have to understand that Holland at this time was going through its own kind of internal conflicts about theology. 
It was essentially the Dutch Reformed Church, which meant that they were the followers of Calvin's theology. But there was a young, relatively young, about 40 years old, young Dutch theologian who was making his own headlines and writing his own books in Holland at the time. He taught at the University of Leiden, and his name was Jacobus Harmanzoom. Okay? I'm sure you've all heard of Jacobus Harmanzoom. No? Oh, that's right. I forgot. When he went to Geneva to study theology, by the way, by the time he got to Geneva to study, Calvin was already dead. But when he got to Geneva to study theology, he did what a lot of theologians were doing at that at that time and changed his name into a more Latin type name and called himself James Arminius. And I personally have a theory. My theory is that he would never have been known by anybody if he kept his old name. Because after all, who would ever want to be called a Harmanzuner? What are you? Are you a Calvinist or a Harmanzuner? Well, I'm not one of those, I can tell you that right now. But he changed his name to Arminius, and he began to modify Calvin's theology in certain ways, not nearly as much as his followers later did, but modified Calvin's theology and established a school of Arminian theology in Holland. And a, a group, at least two congregations of these English separatists came under the influence of Arminian theology. And so they began to accept this. Now, in 1609, they went through a second transformation. And the second transformation was they began to look at the New Testament and to realize it doesn't teach infant baptism. It teaches believers' baptism. And so their pastor, a man by the name of John Smith, it's a pretty easy name to remember until you realize the, the I in, a, in Smith is actually a Y. Then that kind of messes with our minds. Okay. And it's not Smythe, though it might have been back then, but we just call him John Smith with a Y. Um, John Smith begins to teach his people baptism was for disciples only. And so they finally, after a series of Wednesday night prayer meetings where they talk about history and theology and stuff like that, say to him, well, we think you're right, so what do we do? And he said, here's what we do. I sure brought a cup in here. I'd use a water bottle, but... I don't want to get my hair wet. He filled a cup, a goblet, with some water, and he stood before the congregation, and he poured it on his head. And he said, that's what we should do. He baptized himself. In fact, this was called say, S-E, say baptism. And so, having now himself been baptized... He in turn baptized the other professing 
believers in the congregation by pouring water. They were not, they didn't quite, hadn't quite gotten to the, getting the bathtub of the preacher yet. Okay. But they at least were talking about this believer's baptism. So they became the first Baptist group the way we think about Baptists in the modern world. So if I were to ask the question, what was the date of the first Baptist congregation in Holland among English people, what year would you give? 1609, 1609, 1609. Now, again, I remind you back to last week when I said some people think that we can trace our heritage all the way back to John the Baptist, the original Baptist. We can't do that, okay? Because there were periods of time, long periods of time, when there was no believer's baptism being practiced. There were still Christians, but not practicing believer's baptism. So, but from 1609 until right here in January 2022, we have a line of succession of Baptist people that we can now trace historically with documents and with living souls actually sitting in the room. All right. Now, as happens in these kinds of churches, they kind of, some of them split. John Smith stayed in Holland. He got, eventually got mixed up with a group of Mennonites in Holland. The rest of the Baptist group didn't want to be a part of the Mennonites because the Mennonites had some other weird things that they believed that these Baptists did not believe. And so in 1611, some of the Baptist groups made their way back to England. But it didn't go well. They came back under the leadership of Smith's co-worker, a man named Thomas Helwis, and his last name is also spelled with a Y, H-E-L-W-Y-S, Thomas Helwis. And Helwis proceeded to preach a sermon against the King of England, King James I, and got himself landed in Huskow, where a couple of years later he died. But we, from that point on, we do have a Baptist movement in England. It's very, very small. First, just one church. And after a couple of years, there were two churches. But even if you, if you stretch it out over 30 years, there are only about four or five churches that are part of this early Baptist work in England. And these earliest Baptists are actually, I hate to say it, but it's part of history, they're actually Arminian Baptists who believe that you can lose your salvation. Now, what's happening at the same time in England is, and I'm going to cover this part of it and I'll be done. Take time for another question or two if you have them. Is that another group of separatists who never left to go to Holland. They remained behind. And they formed a separatist church, but they were very low-key. They kept they were on the DL about this the whole time. 
the down low, all right? They just didn't get their name in the paper. We just meet over here. And, you know, the the problem, of course, is that, you know, if, if instead of going to the Anglican church on Sunday in meeting there for worship, you meet at the pastor's house of a separatist congregation, somebody's going to wonder why it is at 11 o'clock every Sunday morning, there are 12 donkeys parked out in front of the pastor's house. Okay. And maybe a couple of wagons from the more affluent members. But nonetheless, most of them walked and they, they kept it pretty low key. But there was a group and they had several leaders. They had a, one leader was a guy by the name of John Spillsbury. Spelled just like Pillsbury, but with an S on the front. And then there was a second congregation, and it was led by two brothers. And their last name was Barebones. Okay, which is kind of an odd name. But wait till you hear what the rest of their name was. One of them's first name was Praise God. And the other one's first name or first names was Jesus died for the elect only. Bare bones. I don't know what his mama called him when it was time for dinner, you know. (laughs) Only! And wouldn't it have been tragic if Jesus died for the elect only? Bare bones. Later in his life became an Armenian. What's your name? I'd rather not say. Just call me JD for short. All right. They became co-pastors. And these churches in 1638 adopted believer's baptism. Now, it was still, it was by pouring. But the next year, in 1639, Mr. Spilsbury, pastor of one of these churches, came along and and preached a sermon. And he said, you know, as I read the gospel accounts and as I try to interpret the word, the word baptizo in Greek, which means to plunge or to dunk, it seems clear to me that they baptized by immersion. And so from 1639 onward, we have... Calvinistic Baptist churches that baptize believers by immersion. Now, the old Armenian Baptist churches began to take on a name, and they were called the General Baptists, and the Calvinistic Baptist churches. 
took on a name, and they were called the Particular Baptist Churches. The reason for this is that the General Baptist Churches, that is the Arminian Churches, believed that Christ's atonement was just a general atonement for all persons regardless. The particular Baptist said, in a certain way, Jesus died specifically and gave his life a substitution for those who actually would finally be saved. And from that point, over the next 250 years in British Baptist life, the Baptist churches divided themselves up in this way. General Baptist and particular Baptist. Now, here's what I'm going to do next week. Because the pastor has graciously given us a total of four weeks to do this. And sort of hinted that if it took an extra 10 minutes or so, <laughs> we could do that. But what I want to do is say a few things about several key individuals in among English Baptists, particularly a man named Benjamin Keach, John Bunyan, John Gill, and our beloved John, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. I want to say a few things about them, and then we're going to make our switch to America and the Southern Baptists next week. Okay, now, any questions about any of this? By the way, let me just also say that if you are on Facebook or Twitter and you have a question for me, I'm always happy to take your question. Um. Just be nice to me because I'm very fragile. All right. But my my Facebook name is Chad Brand. My Twitter handle is Chad Owen Brand. So if you don't get your question tonight or you feel embarrassed asking it in public, um, you can feel free to, to text me in that way. And I'd be glad to answer your question. Don't cuss at me. All right. I get enough of that from my own extended family, so, but, uh, and people from previous churches that I used to pastor. But, uh, any questions here? You can preach from the King James Bible if you want to, brother. <laughs> yep, you can do that. But, you know, there are advantages to using modern translations, which is why I do. Is it true that King James was not an upstanding person? That is probably the most, about as much of an understatement as I've heard in a while. So he was very plain. He was, that's the word. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I've been there, done that. And I usually just make other people mad and then they cuss at me. Get a lot of people cussing at me. Yeah, he was, uh, he was a man who had 
a lot of moral issues. Uh, but he was a strong king. His son, we'll talk about briefly next week because he factors into the Baptist story, was a really good man, but he was a terrible king. So, I'm not sure which is worse. Pastor? So, we left off on the general and the, uh, general and particular Baptists. From there, we're going to trace the lineage to where we are today. That's right. That's what's happening next week. And we're really particular because we're fussy about everything. <laughs> so, y'all been uh, edified tonight? Yes. Lifted up and encouraged a little bit tonight? Any, uh, any last minute talks or... Well, Chad, thank you. We'll, we'll see you guys Sunday night. Okay. Uh, let's close in prayer. Paul, would you close?